Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is CEO and creative director and sound designer of Pullman Sound, Bob Pullman. First of all, in California, the seven-year rule may be coming to an end. This is a big deal, but what is a seven-year rule? Sure. They were obligated to stay with them for seven years. Now, this was interpreted in the beginning very widely in that the film studios interpreted instead of seven calendar years as working days instead. So you had to work for 2,555 days, which wound up being a lot more than seven years. So in 1943, actress Olivia de Havilland actually sued Warner Brothers and won and got the interpretation of the law to be calendar years. This seemed like a victory, but it really wasn't in that it's still not great in terms of the actors or musician or artists' ability to switch studios or to switch record labels for a better deal. It got even worse in the music business. In 1987, the record industry was exempted from all this, which meant the label could sign artists to multi-album deals that could extend well past seven years. So in other words, if you signed a five-album deal, even though the contract said seven years, if you didn't complete those five albums, then the record deal would still keep going regardless of how many years it was. This meant that an artist could actually be signed to just one record label for their entire career. Now, a new piece of legislation has actually hit the California Senate floor. This is AB 983. It's called the FAIR Act and it looks like it might pass. So the FAIR Act calls for more reasonable limits on contracts, but it also gives artists an out. With the new law, you must give the label written notice. Okay, that happens in just about every agreement that you have to do that. But now if you repay the advances that you received, then you can get out of the deal. So in other words, if you repay what the record label already put into you, you're able to jump to another deal. If you have another record label that's willing to buy that out, then not a big deal. But if you're going to do it yourself, you have to have some success in order to pull this off. That being said, the onerous terms of the seven-year rule may be coming to an end, and that can only mean good things for musical artists. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, it's no new news that songwriting keeps on evolving just as music keeps on evolving. But it's interesting to look at how the evolution is actually taking place and what's new, what has replaced the old. What we're finding is that music in general is moodier than it has been in the past. For instance, in the 1960s, 85% of the hits were in a major key. and Now it's only about 42%. The lyrics are different as well. They're emotionally ambiguous today, where before they're predominantly on the happy side. Surprisingly enough, 
music is getting slower from about 116 BPM down to about 100. And the average length of a song has actually increased to closer to four minutes where before it was closer to three minutes. This is a big surprise. Finally, there's only been one year since 2012 where at least one number one didn't have some sort of parental advisory warning on it. So if we look at just number one songs, we find that it's extremely rare for a number one to be anything other than in 4-4 time. Number one singles are about 2.5 times more likely to be written in a major key, and C major is the most popular key overall. The presence of explicit lyrics in number one singles has gone from being almost non-existent to pretty normal. And finally, number one singles tend to score high in danceability, energy, and positivity, but I don't think that's any surprise at all. So looking at all this data, are you really sure that you want to write a hit song? It might not be expressing what you really want to express. My guest this week is Bob Pullman, who discovered his unique ability to tell a story through sound while doing sound effects for the original Saturday Night Live. He went on to create Pullman Sound, a full-service audio post and sound design house located in Midtown Manhattan on the penthouse floor. Now it's in his 38th year, going strong since 1984. Bob went on to design sound for Disney's long-form animated series, Doug, and his specialized sound can be heard on series including Little Einstein's Kids Next Door, for over 800 animated episodes. He's also worked with all the major ad agencies on campaigns for major brands like Subway, Nicorette, and Verizon Fios, and in 2010 was the gold winner in the Cannes Lions International Advertising Festival for his work on the Dos Equis, the most interesting man in the world campaign. During the interview, we talked about having a studio in Manhattan, getting client approvals for Atmos mixes, getting started in the business as a high school intern, some great stories about the early days of business in New York, and much more. I spoke with Bob via Zoom from his home studio near New York City. You're in the post and sound design business. How did the pandemic affect that part of the business? In a weird way, it's been sweet and sour, but for for us, it's been kind of very sweet as far as, for me, being in the business for such a long time too, it gave me a lot of energy. Like when I was kind of bunkered down in my house and trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do next and everything and buying mics like this from B&H and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah, to right, right, right. see what could be good to ship out. And uh, yeah, we, the, the, we figured out, we figured out a way to do ADR with, uh, for Warner Brothers. They were, they had to do Scooby-Doo was, uh, was coming out. It was 2020 and it was, they were all ready for it to be released that summer. And they were going to release it on TV. They weren't going to do it in a theater. But the, the very last thing you ever need to do in a cartoon or a movie is an ADR, an ADR line. So they had to have, I think it was Frank Welker, or I think he plays Scooby-Doo. He, we had to re- record him and do ADR well. And everyone who was using like Source Connect and things like that, and there was a lot of latency. You know, there'd be a lot of delay between when the producer would look at like whatever they, they were doing. And we used a uh, an app that a friend of mine actually is was developing for years, and he's still it's still a great app, but it's not. He just doesn't have the money for the publicity and stuff. It was called Connection Open, and it had very low latency, and uh, it also records it. The thing that slows this thing down is it records in a WAV file. It records full bandwidth, 
And so you have to have good internet. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't degrade the quality like IPDTL to keep it going, you know, the, yeah. during, during sessions and stuff. So that was, uh, that was the beginning of it. And then just, uh, we figured I have Northwell hospitals as a, as a client. And so there was a lot of like, you know, things about the vaccines and stuff like that. And, uh, we were able to do things from home. It was crazy. You know, we, we were, we were, we were already settled at home. If it was March 20th, we were like, all the equipment was out of the place by the 23rd. I, I had, I could tell because of the, my Northwell hospital client, they, they wanted me to put a microphone in the announcer's apartment and that she could take to her house also a week before the shutdown. And I said, whoa, this is going to be, this has to be serious. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're telling me to do this. And, you know, I just went in with my studio manager and we looked at each other and said, well, we could do this. We could just put everyone's things at home. And within a, a week, everybody was set up at home. Do you no longer have studios in Manhattan? I still do. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's a, it's a, I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but it's, it's, it's sort of like, uh, I kind of was very lucky that my lease, my five-year lease was up in May of 2021. So when this all happened, I could really negotiate something down for like that one year, at least, you know, for the year. Because my lease was up, I, I didn't have to make it that it was back rent. You know, I didn't have to like give my reduction. What's really hurt a lot of people in New York is people gave them a reduction, but then they asked for the money now. Yeah. And it's like, all of a sudden you got to come up with a hundred grand and they, they don't have it. So I was lucky that that happened. And then I definitely feel confident now. I don't need 5,000 square feet. It's that it's... Uh, we could get away with 2,500 square feet or even it's funny in Manhattan, you know, they'll say 5,000 square feet on a lease. But if you really took a measurement of your space, it's probably about 3,200 square feet, depending on like your location. Like I'm at fifth Avenue, 46th street. And I, I think every inch is like a billion dollars in taxes. Yeah, or something. Yeah, right. So I've been there 39 years and um, I just decided to say one more year, he increased my rent like, you know, back to where it kind of should be for one more year. But we're looking at another space. Yeah, I feel, I do feel, and don't, don't hold me totally to this, <laughs> but I do feel we need a base. And at that base, it needs to be things people don't have in their basements, such as a really good Atmos mix room, like one really good Atmos mix room. Yeah. And like two or three booths, you know, two booths and maybe an extra one, a space that you could grow if you really see you're getting three records and that's it. You don't need big lobbies anymore. You don't need big lounges. You don't need big client services. You don't need all this stuff. I mean, nobody's asked for any of that stuff for over two years at my studio. And my whole place is built around that. It was built around people coming in and out and everything. Yeah. That's the way, you know, everything was. So yeah, you had to do that. You know, speaking of that, do you even have to be in Manhattan anymore? It's a good question. Cause, uh, if I choose to keep the voice record business, if you know the voice record business I have is not people who are building studios at home. It's not because I know we, we get actors coming in doing ADR and it's basically the more the higher end actors are not building studios in their places. You know, they're still, they want to. And, and I think on a lot of the animation stuff, a lot of people still want to like, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I see it more and more. They're doing everything at home. So, 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 but as far as it, do I want to keep that part of my business going it's, or like, just kind of like go to make a deal with somebody else and kind of like bring work there. 
because all my other work, nobody's coming in to listen to anything. I can actually talk about something that up to two days ago, I couldn't mention it, even though we've been working on it for, you know, since last summer. It's a, an animated series on Apple. And we just did, we just basically, we we're finished with it in a month. We did 20 episodes. We're done with it in about three weeks. And all the mixing was done on Apple. Basically, I mean, we didn't do the mixing on that, but it was everybody listened with Apple headphones because it was an Apple project. They like everyone to have the Apple headphones. In the beginning, I kind of was, was, was kind of like a little bit against it, being that when you A-B, it is kind of like accentuates things and it's like, well, you know, like, how can you tell? But the best part of it is that when people are at home, basically there's one way that most, that everyone's listening to it in the same kind of like space. And it also, if you have a dog or if there's like a kid screaming or something, you can hit a button and it makes it go away. Yeah, right. I have a pair, so I know, yeah. Yeah, so so in that way, I think it's it's been good. I, I actually, I, I'm the, uh, Justin Kalp, I, sh- I want to give Justin like, you know, 100% credit on the design and the mix and stuff. I, I, I work with him on every show. I'll give notes and stuff, but just Justin does it all basically in his basement, you know, in his house. Mm. He st- started doing it. Yeah, I guess he, yeah, he's moved in there already. And nobody comes in to listen. I mean, I, I actually will listen to my pass on a laptop speakers and make sure I can hear everything. Because this, this project too, usually we do all everything, but we didn't have an Atmos set up and kind of like Apple already had a deal with Postworks and they, they were more approved or whatever with the security and everything. So we did the sound design and I call, I call on the credits. I mean, I guess, Elliot, if you hear this, I love you and I think you're a great mixer. <laughs> but, but we, Justin really did the mix on it because he did the set, he did the, the Foley, the sound effects. And the mix, and we did a mix kind of like on a 5.1 template. And just there, it's because it's a little kid show, it's called Duck and Goose. There wasn't tons of action going on. I mean, basically, once in a while, something might happen that would be above. But Apple has, you know, the stamp of, you know, everything has to be in Atmos. And, and that's, uh, which is fine. It's okay. It's just another step that we happen to not have been set up yet for, too. So I kind of split it with Jay, who runs the thing there at Soundworks and at Postworks. And ironically, uh, Elliot, who is, I, I think maybe one day there'll be a new title, but he has, he does, Elliot does have the credit of this, the uh, re-recording mixer on it. But it, he was, he was really the, <clears throat> the Atmos, the Atmos and the final kind of mixer. Because the mix was all done beforehand. And it's basically took probably about six hours, seven hours to do the uh, Atmos part of it. And then you got to do like a another half a day with deliverables or so. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I know. There's, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy now, you know. I just had this conversation before with, with some people about the fact that Atmos is completely different than what we've been used to. And it's a new learning curve. And it's a lot more technical, at least right now. There's a lot more going on. So, it, you know, you have to think differently when you go into something that with Atmos. Yeah, I think there's two ways you got to look at Atmos. You got to look at Atmos one way. Is it going to be in a theater? And one way is it going to be in a house and yeah. somebody's apartment? I, I actually, this year, you know, you think I would have had systems before this because I've been doing it so long. But this year I bought the, the Nakamichi soundbar with the, it comes with the Nakamichi and four speakers and then two subwoofers. And then I bought the Sonus. I got the Sonus around and the Sony to see what, you know, our stuff is sounding like on all these different things. And 
And uh, for me, I like the Nakamichi the best because it had, it, it comes with a, you, you, you don't work it on an app. It actually comes with a remote. You know, the, the rest of my family hates it because it's like just another remote to deal with the sound. But you could actually put treble in and you can adjust some of the surrounds a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, I think what it really comes down to is like, you got to really think about it. It's like back in the day, like when it was just stereo, they, I remember early in it, when it started in the set, late seventies, early eighties, they do tests on like how many people stereos worked, like both speakers, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. and it would be like 35% people just were still listening out of one speaker. So when you did commercial work, you didn't split things up too much because you'd lose your, you know, the, the talent. So and I'm, it's the same thing now with surround. I look, I look at that, the, from what I can tell, probably maybe 1% of the people will actually put in the proper, not even 1%, probably less than 1% will put in the proper speakers and place in the right angles to like re- represent like what it should sound like from the studio that was mixed in. The rest of them, it's all about the sound bar now. Yeah. And and the reason Atmos will take off and is here to stay because it just sounds better. And it's like easy for people to set up. Like I could, you know, but you have to make sure if people hit the wrong buttons, I could tell like you hear a lot more music than dialogue. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it disappears. So people who don't know that, they, they like would listen to a whole movie and all the dialogue drowned out by the music. But, know, so. but see, that, that's a problem. And I had this conversation with the manufacturer, speaker manufacturer, not that long ago, where it was, how do you actually market Atmos? Well, you can't show a picture. And the only way is you have to demonstrate it. They have to be there. They have to experience it. But if they don't get the best experience, if there's a problem, like you just said, they have the wrong settings, that's really going to turn them off to it. Right. You know, I, I look at it like, you know, I still think it's going to be, people will finally hit the hit the right button. Because it's like back, remember when we were kids, it was like we'd always get a new pair of, someone would get a new pair of speakers and like it would always be better than the ones that someone else had and everyone's trying to top everyone. And, and it's, uh, I think it's going to still happen. And I think, you know, it's, uh, it's like things are in surround now and you hear it a million different ways. I Like I've really been listening to it closely now because... I have all these different systems and especially with commercials because we do commercial work. I'll listen to see how they do. So people are handling, you know, the surrounds and it's, it's uh, some, some get it right, but some, the people who get it wrong, it's really, they put too much in the surrounds yeah, right. and it drowns out the message because, which is something I kind of been against, but everyone who works for me tells me to shut up. It's like this, the voice track should be diverged a little bit to the left and the right yeah i get you know, that but but nobody does that because it's like a rule thing that was set up back in you know at some point that the voices comes in the middle the reason that rule was set up that way is because it was made for theaters not homes the voice gets diverged gets gets diverged into the into the theater yeah so you don't know where it's coming from yeah but when you're sitting in a living room and the speaker's like two feet in front of you you know the voice is coming right and right that you're not getting a mix. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's sort of like this this separate thing. Okay, here's a question for you, you know, when it comes to that. So what do you do for client approvals with Atmos? They trust. I think that's the biggest thing that's happened with the COVID. It's like, and I think it's the hardest thing for younger people to get in to because it's a matter of people trusting you. I mean, it's really, it's what you do. I mean, if it, I mean we're about to do a bigger cartoon and I could say the name because it's been publicized, KIF, for uh, Disney. Okay, we start that. We're, we're doing the pre-design right now, the design 
where you see if the client likes it, you know, the direction you're going in. But um, that one is in 5.1, but it's a lot more action. It's not, not two ducks in a meadow. It's like, you know, things happening all over the place. Right now, I think we're going to probably get together for the first few mixes and they'll hear it. And we'll kind of, and, and then it's really a matter of, it's like the song, it's a matter of trust. <laughs> it's like, it becomes like, that's, that's what, uh, you know, they trust us for. And I think on the bigger projects where you have a budget, you know, and these, pro a lot of these projects I have, they're not like blockbuster movies where you can set up a guy, you know, in his, in his, in his carriage house on the side in the backyard of all this, you know, the right speakers and people are doing that. It's, it's being done. But I think, uh, no, it's like that. That's why I said I like I listen to it on the laptop speakers at the end, no matter what, because like it goes back to when I mixed Doug like a million years ago. I took the Studer speaker that you remember that mono speaker yeah. that was. In, I took them out of the Studer quarter inch machines, and I built the same cabinet of the of the uh, the Meyer HD five HD HD one HD yeah HD one same wood same wood yeah and I still have them. I can show you. I can bring one. I guess in the basement somewhere. But, uh, and that's what I would mix the, the final mix of the show would always be through these little studer speaker because it was good. Cause it was, it was a mono speaker that played, you could hear phasing happen too, you know, cause you heard both channels through the mono. So it's really, I think that's, I mean, when it comes down to the mix, that's the most important mix is that, that smaller speaker mix. Cause I think 80%, I don't know if they've done kind of focus, you know, done testing on it. How many percent of the people listening out of the, their flat screen speakers, you know, those things that are like on the side of your thing. So, and that's almost mono, you know, it's like you're, so it's really, that's how I get around. Like, you, you know, with an app, that's how we get around it. It's like they have to trust. But, you know, you bring that up. I haven't seen anything on that in a long time. Now, once upon a time, everybody listened to the sound coming out of their television. So you can approximate that because you knew, well, this is kind of what it is on most of them. But now it's so different and across you the have board. To, you have to, the, the people who work for me are listening to things on many different speakers, you know, before it goes out for, for uh, quality control and everything. Because you, you, you hear so many, I'm looking forward to when they, you can do some kind of jerry rig wiring to get the 5.1, I think, through some of these, these uh, systems. You know, to, so you could hear it on the soundbar because you think you'd want to mix it and like your mix, like, yeah. you know, like you like, but they, it's like, I think it's a little bit, probably like we're in the same time when they had, you had Betamax, VHS, different kind of like cassette tapes. You have different types of Atmos, lot, you know, electronic uh, decoding, you know, so because Sonus does it different than Nakamichi, they do all do it. Apple do and it the headphones is different than. It's all different. Yeah. So until there's like one standard, like, you know, Dolby will probably come out with a, I hate to say a freaking box that costs a million dollars and you'll have to get that. And that's what be the, that'll be the standard. Like, <laughs> Bob, let's go back to the beginning. I want to hear how you get into the business. Okay. <laughs> well, you regret asking that question. My, my wife is looking at me now like, but <laughs> okay. So I was, I was always into um, sound, I guess, because my father, I lived in a, I basically lived in a shack in Queens, 73rd and Bell Boulevard. My mother is 100 years old, 101 almost. She still lives there. So I can go back to the same space that I lived in, which is weird. But uh, my father, we didn't have money, but he had two big JBL speakers 
that had a mahogany wood, which I still have in my basement. And I think they're as old as me. They were from 1958. Mm. And he had a Macintosh <clears throat> preamp, which I still over here, and big tube Macintosh amps. He used to work in the Garmin Center, but he loved opera. And he loved, he, he would sit home every Sunday and he always had whatever the best tuner on the market was. He never had AM, FM, would only be an FM. Whatever the highest quality tuner, he had it because he, and I still have these tapes and I know someone at the Met and I should donate to him because they say some of these things, they didn't record them, you know? So uh, he recorded like every freaking opera on Sunday afternoon at the Met. How did he record them? Well, first he, he, he got the first Sony reel to reel deck that was just like a metal thing. It was a playback. And then he got the record preamp for that with the little green lights that would uh -huh. go up and down. Yeah. So he, so he started recording them on that, on the little Sony thing. And then he built his way up to a Tamberg at the end. Tamberg was the last reel-to-reel -reel that he had. And uh, and then he had the first cassette machine. He got into cassettes. He got into, It was a Harman Kardon CAD4. <laughs> and I still have this freaking thing. And he like then he started recording the, the operas on the cassette. I think he might have done both at the same time at some point. But uh, but anyway, so he did that. And I so I had my little Iowa as a kid. I knew about sound. But then I, I got into Super 8 and 8 millimeter. I wanted to be Ron Howard. I sort of wanted, I wanted to make movies, but I, I just was from this shack in Queens and I didn't have money to go to NYU and things like that. And I got it but in the high school I was in, Cardoza High School. They got the lighting system from the New York Pavilion from the World's Fair when they built it. So when I was there, it was equivalent to like working on a Broadway show's lighting thing. And my best friend Gary's brother was the, was the head of the stage crew when I was a freshman. So he kind of like brought me in. And by the time I was a junior, I was running the place. And I was like, you know, I, I actually talked him into going to the Fillmore East, closed down. And I talked him into buying the oil and water stuff. And like we did. The oh. guy let me gave me 200 bucks to go buy stuff. And we bought this stuff. And it was, uh, it's sort of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like a lighting designer. That's what, at first but I was making these eight millimeter films at the same time and putting like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and just, you know, things behind it. And then what happened? Then my best friend, one of my best friends too, Ricky Albert was got an internship through the New York city high school system at A&R recording in September of like 1975. And we graduated in 76. So they had these internships from September to January then from January to to June. So I said, how the fuck did you get that? <laughs> it's like, yeah. And he said, well, if he was in another high school, he said, well, this lady came in, it was an intern and, you know, and I even went to visit him there and, and they wouldn't let me in. Like he, it was like, that, I was very lucky cause I got into a small place. He, I he, they wouldn't let him touch machines. He just was there to do whatever he did. Yeah. And so, but I went with him, they would, this internship program that New York city, New York city school system used to have a human resource part of it that was dismantled, I don't know when. It's not there anymore. But it was like, and it was to do internships and things like that. And you'd go four days in intern. The fifth day, you would go meet all the kids in your group and the intern counselor. So I went with Ricky. I said, I want to meet your counselor and find out how I get into this thing in January. So I went with him and I talked to her and she said, well, we're going to be coming to your school. And when we come to your school, you'll hear an announcement and you try to apply for it. I said, do you need good grades? She said, grades help. It's like, 
and I had like a 78 average. I didn't have a great, great grade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so um, they came to the school and it was like an act of God. It was her. She was the one who decided. So I guess because she saw my enthusiasm and she saw my stage work, you know, the stuff I was doing on the stage and, and these eight mil, I was getting a hundred in cinematography and like a 70 something and everything else. Yeah. There was, there was a teacher there, Peter Drew. And I, I do have to, he was part of how I did it because he, he, I didn't realize till years later, they, we just did a whole function honoring this guy, you know, cause there was nobody else doing cinematography in New York city high schools. <laughs> you know, he came up with this freaking thing and he'd show us like clockwork orange and like, you know, stock soup and all these crazy movies and stuff. And he'd have a class and I had a super eight camera and cause I used to go to formula one races when I was very young, a friend of the family took me and I started doing it through that. And, and then, um, I made these films in the class, single frame animations and stuff, but, and I'd put soundtracks behind them. And so why am I saying this? Okay. Now I got lost. Oh, Bring me uh, back. so, so A&R. <laughs> so, A&R. so, so, so I, so she let me be in the internship program. Okay. So I was, and so I went, I wanted to be as a kid. I wanted, I, I wanted to be in a big place. I wanted to be at NBC, ABC or something glamorous or something. And I, they only sent me on like a couple interviews. I remember one was Manhattan cable, which was like nothing. It was like, this like hole in a wall and, but they didn't pick me. And then there was somewhere else. And then the third place I went to was this place called Wendell L. Craig, Wendell L. Craig Inc. on 25 West 43rd street. And it was the original place that did the national lampoon radio hour. And they, there was a recording studio that kind of was created out of a bigger place called FLP Productions. That was this, the only place that did radio spots for movies and trailers for movies in New York. And they had a carriage house in the 60s. And they basically, it was blown up through drugs and spending money to make a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when that blew up, Wendy opened his own place. Chuck Workman went to California. Don LaFontaine, you remember the yeah, voice yeah. of God? Yeah. So I, wor I worked with Don as a child wow. before he became Don LaFontaine. Because all the movie, we were doing radio spots at movie. I did, I got an, go back, I got an internship at Wendy's. Okay, he hired me. And when I went there, he had a big office and a tiny little room that had a four-track scully, two, two tra one two-track scully, and a mono machine, and a board no he had an allen and heath when i first got there and then we bought a zimit board like and and he had a great neumann microphone that i did wind up selling when i needed some money to keep my company going mm. for five grand those big neumanns that are worth like you know the two mic an, an m50 an m50 was yeah. one of those yeah and so i did so i had so i and i learned i learned the business at wendy's i didn't go to college Mr. Drew, the reason I brought up Mr. Drew is because I told Mr. Drew after I did the internship there, I said, Mr. Drew, they want to hire me. They want me to stay there for, you know, past the summer too. And, and he said, Bob, he said, take the golden brass ring. He said, you only get that a few times in your life. And he said, don't worry about it. And, and then I remember also, for some reason, I always remember Lucille Ball saying, take the job and the money will come later. Hmm. And like, you know, you got to love what you're doing, yeah, basically, yeah. I think she's saying. And, um, I did it and I stayed there for, I stayed there from 76 till 81. And I really learned the craft of doing radio spots for movies. I mean, we used to go up to what's now the Trump tower at the Gulf and Western building. Mm -hmm. 
And that was the Paramount building back in the 80s before they all, they, all the movie companies moved to California in the early 80s. That's why Don, when I was saying Don LaFontaine, and they all, they all moved there. Wendy stayed in New York. But it, it was, uh, he used to, we used to go up in the, we used to go up and, you know, I could say this now, it's legal in New York. We used to go up, we used to smoke a joint <laughs> and he used to, I used to go up with Wendy and watch like King Kong or For Your Eyes Only and all these great movies in a screening room by ourselves. Oh man. And I'm this like 17 year old kid, 18 year old kid from Queens. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't even realize how cool it was. And he would tell me, write down the cool lines, you know, that you think we could use later. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what do we, I didn't even know what I was, I was doing. And then we'd get the films in and we'd get them on a, we'd get them in a, a we'd get them on a quarter inch, the music effects and dialogue. And I had to go through all the tracks to pull out the dialogue lines and pull out the music. And he, and the, God rests Wendy's soul. He stopped doing drugs and stopped drinking like back in the 90s. But everyone was doing so much stuff back then. Anything I could do, I was let to do. And I did it. I'd stay, I didn't care about them. I made $105 a week and I'd stay at night to do, I, I got a, a Clio nomination for King Kong for a radio spot for King Kong back in like, you know, when I was 19, 20 years old. And I, I just, I was having fun. I did, I think the, the coolest thing I did back in the day, that was, we did the radio spots for Last Waltz. And Wendy gave me them as my own client. And I wound up uh, doing the radio spots and then went going to the opening party. And like everybody in the world was there, everyone from Saturday Night Live. And, but I, I, I I left after like twenty minutes. I got, I almost had a nervous break. I almost had a nervous break. <laughs> yeah. I, when I think back, it was like nuts, you know. But it was like it was just so weird. Yeah. Did that leave the to to SNL? Well, I did. We did. It, SNL was always there because Wendell Craig, rest his soul, and uh, Wendy just died like last year, not from COVID though. But uh, he was originally going to be Don Pardo on Saturday Night Live, oh. and the original cast for Saturday Night Live. We're all from the National Lampoon Radio Hour. So it's like they, we were only two blocks from the NBC building. So we would do like the funny sound effects. Like the, there's, I'd love to see it again. I've never seen it. This one was, was uh, the lobsters taking over the NBC building. And Chevy Chase came in. And he came in and he did, <laughs> he did all these weird noises. And then he started talking to me. You know, first he came in and talked about like, what does it mean when you want to, you take a hot shower and then you pass out? Like, you're doing too much cocaine. That's what I mean. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, but, but it was, it was, uh, he told me that he, his original job was making radio spots as an engineer. He was like, Chevy he Chase. did my job. Really? Yeah. Huh. He was telling me, that, you know, I don't think I, I had that in a dream, but it's like, it's so many years ago. But I remember him saying, oh, I used to do this when I started in the business. Wow. Like, like he used to do that. And the, the guy who, this guy, Bob Tischler, he used to work for Wendy, two, two, two engineers before me. He became the producer of Saturday Night Live because mm -hmm. they were. He was the one when they were really doing the the uh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and they went ahead and built Studio Twenty One at National Lampoon, mm -hmm. and he ran everything there. And I, I did the last National Lampoon car stereo test and demonstration tape. I was allowed to use their studios for as much as I wanted for free because it was their project, and I worked out of there for a little bit. But their sixteen track wouldn't back time like the four track, and I just like had with my way of doing it and i wound up going back to i made this like crazy stereo thing on a four track and two two tra a two track and a 
with a million edits on going back and forth. Yeah. But, uh, and that, that's, but it, it, the Saturday Night Live stuff dwindled down because I, I don't, I didn't know how to network back then when I was younger. I really like even like the last waltz people. And when I look back at so many of these people that I met to try to like, you know, get into it, I just was, I got married very young and I had a child at 25. And, mm-hmm. and then, so when I, Wendy decided not to have the studio anymore. So I had to figure out what to do. And I met somebody on 46th street that had a place that did, uh, animatics and they, they had a, an eight track scully. It was like, Oh my God. And a Midas board and a cool little booth and a, a way to sync film with video. You know, it was more of a video kind of place. Mm-hmm. but the guy was very far behind with the, uh, with the, the way animatics were going. Cause he was still doing it on an Oxbury. He had guys drawing things wow. and Charlex has just started making it with video where you didn't have to wait the next day to see your animatic. Yeah. <laughs> and so he didn't kind of stay up with it. And I was stayed with him for a year or so, but that's where I met ad people. I met people from gray and NWA and a few people. And then I was there two years and I, and there was a, these guys, Gary Allen and Joe Menza. They had a place two doors down on 46th street called penthouse recording. And this was like, must have been 1984 was when I started 1984. And the guy I was working for, it turned out was in the mafia. And it was just a weird story, but I left at two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday night, a snowy February Sunday night. And I wheeled this, all my stuff because I was worried he'd lock me out if I said I was leaving. Mm-hmm. And I took all my masters and everything. And I went up to this, it was called the penthouse then, but it was basically the elevate, the janitor's room between the elevator motors and the water tanks okay <laughs> and and i found out years later they didn't even have a cfo for that to uh-huh. rent it okay and so i i stayed there in that one room for eight years and i did ad work mostly ad work and and continued to do radio spots for movies with uh vestron pictures it was the only one left in in this area yeah yeah i, I did dirty dancing for your eyes only young guns you know these few films and then the ad stuff started like a being more appealing to me because I would do these estimates and they didn't, I didn't have to work all the hours. <laughs> yeah. I think it was back in the day when they marked things up, I'd make an estimate, work on things three hours and built a tent. Yeah. And it was like, okay. And they were like, and they just loved the work I was doing. So I, I kind of started, I became the gray advertising studio for many years until they built an in-house thing. And, but basically at the same time, I was there about eight years and I got dug. I got the cartoon series, Doug. I'd met Fred Newman. I don't know if you, Fred Newman, if you look up Fred Newman, he's an important man. He, he basically can do any, a mouth with his, an orchestra with his mouth. He's a mouth sound and personality. Mm-hmm. And I met him back in that first place, Wendell Craig Inc., many, many moons before then, doing these radio dramas called Lyric Theater, which I'm trying to bring back as a pod thing, where it was like, take a song like Devil Went Out to Georgia, and you stop the music, and then you have the play. You stop the music, and you tell the story of it. And Fred Newman played Johnny and it was his first acting role in out of Harvard business school. He could have been a Harvard business school. He decided to do acting and, and doing this stuff. And so he, I met him and he was like amazed how he was doing Foley of things and whatever. We became friends and he brought me the cartoon series, Doug basically he brought me the, a, a few, the sound effects because they'd run out of money. It was, it was whenever the Persian Gulf war was, they had $400 to finish the pilot. 
And I went, okay, I'll do it. And I did it. And it's, it was a lesson for everybody out there. It's like that $400 led to millions later. But he said, if I get this cartoon, you're going to get it. And I said, really? I said, you know, and usually people say things and they don't happen to, but, but Jim Jenkins is, was, is an amazing man. And he's the one who created Doug. And I happened to, at the same time, it was like, you know, the lot, stars aligned. I don't know if it was a religious thing or whatever, but I got a screen sound. I got the eight channel screen sound, the, one of the very first digital systems that actually didn't crash. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that you could do a thing. And I did Doug. I did the records of Doug in Easter Sunday. I, the people from SSL were at the studio and I was recording Monday morning doing the first episode of Doug. And it took me like three days to figure out how to edit. <laughs> but yeah. ironically, I, I paid Howie Schwartz when I think about it. You know, Howie's still yeah, here. Oh yeah. Yeah. I paid Howie Schwartz $750 an episode. And I was only making 10000 maybe an episode. $750 an episode to transfer from a screen sound to Mac because we weren't sure if the DATs would hold the sync later rather than just transferring to DAT. I, you know, nobody really knew yet because yeah. it was just all new. So I, I did it. But the, the big but there was I got to see the innards of Howie's place at night and I worked with one of his assistants and I went, and he said, he said You're, you mean the engineers have assistants? I said, yeah, yeah, everyone engineers. I said, oh, that's really cool. It's like, and I started learn, seeing how like a bigger facility kind of works. So yeah. I learned a little bit like from doing that. And, um, but Doug led to doing, um, you know, records for Ren and Stimpy then. And then uh, you got Kids Next Door and Little Einstein's Stanley, JoJo Circus, a lot of cartoons. There was a point where we were doing literally four episodes a week, you know, and, uh, and then I kind of built a company out of that. And we never, we, it was like, we were anti pro tools for the longest time. You know, it was like, I, I had a guy working before me, this guy, Ira Kemp. And I don't know if you know the name Ira is like, you know, he's from back in the day. He was, uh, he's one I built like Eastside yeah, yeah. and the power station. He's one of these, you know, crazy guys. And, but he became my advisor. He advised me on the screen sound. So when it came to like figure out, okay, what are we going to do now? I'm tired of these three drives connected on an Omni mix. And it was, and everyone wanted to give me an OMF to like finish the project. And I, you know, SSL sort of figured it out, but it was so freaking yeah, funky. Yeah, yeah. But I think what well, we did it. And then there was a thing called the DSP post station. I don't know if it was from Australia. It was like a touchscreen thing. It was back in the 90s yeah 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 it was, it was cool it was very cool and i let ira talk me into it and we were doing well enough and it was like uh the banks were willing to give me a million dollars in credit so rather than leasing things i spent like a half a million on this this dsp stuff make a long story short the day before september 11th dsp went bankrupt and went out of business oh. and then september 11th happened the next fucking day so and so it's a it's amazing we still stayed there but we still we worked with that dsp stuff for a while but then eventually we got into the pro tools and at the same time we were always doing like these ads by day and cartoons by night because people couldn't work at night when i was doing the cartoons i had a night staff and it was good for la too because they do stuff later but now you don't have to do that it's like you know people can like live a life and like not have to come in and work in a freaking studio all night yeah <laughs> it's no. like so, Different. I mean, that's really, I mean, that's really, 
the story is really, I mean, there was a point in 1999, I had 28 people. We had almost three floors and I was working all the time. I was like, it's not like it's been in the last four years or so, where I kind of like more of a creative director and just kind of like, you know, watch the bank account and see what's going on. But, uh, it was really, uh, it was a crazy time. I mean, when I look back at it, it was like, I didn't, I didn't even know. I mean, I'll be, be honest with you when even, even probably into at least 15, 20 years into my own business. Cause I was always working and I had people, I didn't even know what accounts receivable and payable meant. Okay. It was like, yeah. I know what it is now and I've known what it is the last 10 years, but it was like, I was just, it was, uh, my advice for people is, uh, nothing lasts forever. And, but I, I feel blessed by like going back to like the positive things of, you know, kind of coming to full circle about the pandemic was that I've been doing this so long now that having to think about things, because we were always thinking about like getting rid of more space and people working from home. And, you know, there's a lot of talk, 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 so you blew in the face. This thing made us do everything. Yeah. And everything that we were talking about happened. And it was, uh, I feel very fortunate to have this second round of uh, Home and Sound. Yeah, yeah. You know, with, with a very young staff, I'm very lucky to have it. So I can't take it, give the people who work for me enough credit. They're incredible. You know, Josh runs the place and I have uh, Diana David. I have Max Conklin, Justin Kaup, and we added Nick Long was just added. What a name for an engineer. Yeah, right? okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he... But we just added him just about a year ago, less than a year ago, because Home and Sound has been interns from the very beginning, because I kind of did it the way I came up. Mm -hmm. And we haven't been able to do that in the pandemic. Just people working at home and people don't want coming in with their families and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. So we looked for, I actually found it through the New York Post Alliance, you know, the, the PNYA. Yeah, yeah. And I was, and I went on a few times on the, uh, you know, you want to meet people in sound. And I figured people who are going to go on that are going to be people who are, proactive and they're going to want, they really want to do this, you know? So I went on a few of them and we found Nick, you know, when I'm ready for another one, I'd probably do a similar thing again too. Yeah. Cause uh, Nick has been great. He's been, came from being like a perennial intern with little projects to an ADR, an ADR uh, recordist to a mixing reality shows. And if I'm going to say anything about the Pullman sound team, that's different. I really see it when I go to Los Angeles, when I go to Los Angeles, I go like, Oh, why is, why do you need so many people? And it's like, it, it, it's, uh, everyone who works for me knows how to do everything. And I, I think, I, I think it's something that I guess it's, it's definitely going to keep happening because people are, you, you don't want to be a machine because there's so many people in jobs that are like machines, even yeah. though they're kind of doing what they want, but they're like, you get bored doing the same thing, you know, no matter, even how cool it is, I think you kind of get bored. Yeah. So I think there's something to be said for doing that. I have one more question and I'll let you go. And you touched on it a little bit. The best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you. I mean, I gave one of them before, like that I heard this thing that Lucille Ball said, take the job and the money come later. I guess the studio manager in my first place at Wendell Craig, there's this guy who stole a comba. He's still alive, but he's, he doesn't know where he is, <laughs> but he, he's, he, he, uh, he made me treat everything. You know, I used to play him like when I did the King Kong things and stuff like that. I mean, he could have done this better than the way he did it to me, but it was basically, you know, he, he 
he taught me to like not look at how good everything I was, but to look at my mistakes and make them better. And also whatever I'm working on to treat it as it's like the greatest thing I've ever worked on. Like, cause one day, like when I was used to do these like things called rock quiz and metal shop and all these shows and stuff, yeah. you know, it's just by the pound, just boom, 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 and all on quarter inch. And I actually was back timing. I was doing DJ stuff before DJ. I was back timing on record players, like looking at the strobe. Yeah. Like, cause I had to figure it out once cause my, I couldn't stand up to do stuff for a while. And, and, uh, he taught me to look at it all at that, you know, look at the mistakes and treat everything, whether it's a toilet bowl commercial or whatever it is, like it's the greatest thing I've ever worked on because I'll make, I'll get better at it. Cause if you kind of like, don't put that energy into the things that you're doing, when you get that chance to really do it, you're not going to have the chops to do it. You're not going to have the chops. It's tough. I mean, I really, if I'm going to say anything to people who are trying to get into the business now, I have sympathy for you. It's not, it's not easy, but I think, Anybody who really likes what they're doing, you know, that's what they should try to do. And just send things that show what you love. You can find out more about Bob and Pullman Sound at PullmanSound.com. That's Pullman Sound, P-O-M-A-N-N, sound, all one word, dot com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at BobbyOsinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 